0: Happy Friday and thanks for spending the week with us here on the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of tvdads.com.
1: And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum.
0: And Chris, we had, yesterday was kind of a mess with the uh, science that didn't work, but all the stuff in this one is pretty straightforward. They're, <laughs> they're actually getting very, extremely accurate to the point of maybe near boredom for people who aren't into checklists. <laughs> uh, but it gives it gives uh, uh, James Horner a good workout or we're seeing uh, uh, Ken's running down the list of things that uh, has has to be done, and Jack's following through word for word, and uh, uh, you know, t- talking about what what they have to do. Is some interesting some interesting things in here uh, that are going on. As as we as we've been talking all week about the you know the reason that you don't have to worry when you step on an instrument panel is the first thing you have to do in a command module is turn on the instrument panel. So uh, that's pretty much what uh jack is doing here uh mattingly tells him to uh circuit breakers question warning lights for the main b uh th- that's the power supply the b the b power supply uh turning on all the things that are eventually going to warn them if anything goes wrong so when he plugs them in he turns off the uh uh the uh he he, he closes the circuit on that and the first thing that comes on when he does that is he gets a um, an alarm warning saying that the alarm's working so it's built to do that. It's not, it doesn't mean there's an alarm. It just means it's kind of like when you hit the smoke alarm test button on, on your smoke alarm. So uh, he, uh, he turns that off and that means that they're all set for, for that. The next part of it, he talks about the uh, BMAG. Uh, that's uh, BMAG number two. He's, uh, he's turning on uh, what we're calling the, the body mounted Uh, gyros the the, uh, body mounted gyros are the things that tell them not where they're at but where uh, any changes that are being made it notices the rate the the rate that they're rolling the rate that they're pitching the rate that they're turning left or right or translating moving forward and backwards toward or away from the lunar module Uh, now these the electronics in those things need a while to warm up so the first thing they do is they turn to a they turn into an intermittent setting, which allows a little heater that heats up the electronics in the gyroscope. And then after about maybe a minute or two goes by, uh, Swergert will tell him to turn it to uh, power to on. So you first you warm it up. It's kind of like the ignition in your car. You, you set it to ignition and you just leave it to on. So he kind of hit the ignition switch on the on the gyroscope there. And, uh, and there, of course, there's two of them. We sk- kind of skipped over that he did one, but you didn't want to go through the whole, the whole checklist. Uh, next thing that he talks about is uh, sequential logic one and two on. And so Swigert says sequential logic on one and two. And you say to yourself, what is, what's this sequential logic? And what it is is it's a timer. Uh, when you turn on the sequential logic, this timer is being used for the parachutes. After reentry, uh, you have the drogue chutes let loose and then the main chutes uh, are let loose and if you if you let all the parachutes go at the same time there's a good chance they'd get tangled up with each other and that's that's not good because you know you can't you don't have reserve chutes anywhere this is the mains are the only things that work so what this sequential logic does is it kind of says one mississippi two mississippi three mississippi and it'll launch every i, I think it's i think it's every two seconds it'll launch a uh, a parachute out so that as the the shoots come loose they're not all out at the same time they're at different altitudes and so they'll spin out and open up at different rates so that they don't the the cords don't get tangled and the sheets don't uh knock into each other so that that's all that sequential logic does and then uh, the final thing that they're doing here while they're in space is he talks about uh, command module uh, cm RCS pressure on. So, what he's doing there is he's getting ready for the reaction control system that's built into the sides of the command module that's going to control their flight through reentry and, uh, and through the interface and entry. Uh, that's powered on now. So all the switches that are on the control panel that'll be able to let them use the joysticks to uh, shift the shift the shift shift the ship a tongue twister left or right or up and down or side to side or roll uh, that'll all turn on so the uh, the rcs uh, is very important for them for keeping the correct attitude as they're re-entering the atmosphere so that's a key thing that he's turned on there so we leave outer space and it's day seven beginning of the the seventh day of in, in outer space and we wind up in the uh, lovells driveway and uh we're seeing Gosh, a bunch of... Uh, it's like a little auto show here, here, isn't it, Chris?
1: Oh, my God, yeah. For anybody loving... Uh, I think for anybody loving classic vehicles, a film set in a in a past time frame um, is just amazing to sit and watch. Because it's like... It's not really a car show. It's more of the... It, it gives you an idea of what this was like when they were living, breathing, everyday drivers for these cars, yeah. you know? And... Um, you know, I, I immediately saw, I think it's a, I'm going by memory here, but I think there's like a light blue Falcon, Ford Falcon sitting in the driveway with the big round tail lights on it. And of course, and I think, I don't think we've talked about it up to this point is the Corvette. Um, and the Corvette is the thing of legend when it comes to the NASA astronauts. Uh, astronauts of course are very proud to drive the Corvette, uh, and Corvette uh, was, of course, very proud to have the astronauts driving it. Um, what was very interesting was uh, this offer came about um, during the original seven uh, astronauts. It was a dealership uh, by the name of Jim Rathman uh, who was also a, a race car driver, and he had the idea that you know people were going to be watching what the astronauts wore, what they ate, what they drove, and he basically set that with General Motors and General Motors gave him a green light uh, to offer the astronauts two cars they, they were able to lease two vehicles a uh, dollar each for a year uh, as long as they were astronauts um, now what's interesting is when you first signed on to become an astronaut you got sort of like a signing bonus and they were saying that uh, even after the Apollo program that a lot of times astronauts would get themselves a hot car, uh, that with that bonus, that was like the first thing that they would go do. Um, the uh, but at any rate, so, the, so you got a choice, you got two cars because you were, you know, you, you were a married couple traditionally, then. And you know, a lot of times the spouse, the wife would get a more um, usable vehicle, uh, economical vehicle like a station wagon or or bigger sedan, and then of course, the astronauts, uh, as, would choose the Corvette. Uh, Dick Gordon told me from Apollo 12 uh, that uh, his exact words were no self-respecting astronaut uh, would not choose uh, the Corvette when given a chance to have one. So um, that, uh, of course, the crew of Apollo 12 had, uh, you know, the custom painted matching Corvettes. Uh, Something I just found out recently, uh, Jim, you know, the paint scheme for those Corvettes.
0: Yeah, the gold, the the, the... gold. Yeah. Yeah, with the, the written... black
1: on the gold with the white pinstripe. So yeah. um it was actually uh it, it was done between Al Bean, uh, who was the of course the artist, uh of, of the crew, along with a gentleman named Alex Tremulus. Hm. Now, Alex Tremulus is not a household name. However, he was one of the stylists behind developing the Tucker Torpedo. Wow. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting uh deal, he was one of the people that helped design the paint scheme for the cars Um, when I had the chance to talk with Dick Gordon and Al Bean unfortunately both of them are now past it was interesting, they said that the housing plan that the astronauts lived in um, had a, they they knew more astronauts were coming Uh, so on this piece of land they had built the streets uh, all around where the new houses were going to go but the new houses weren't built yet so he said, you know, you had this sort of elaborate street system with just an empty field. Uh, and he said, so there were a lot of times when he had some neighborhood kids and stuff, they'd let the neighborhood kids drive the Corvettes in this area. Uh, which, could you imagine, like, you know, the first car you ever drove was like the, one of the Apollo 12 Corvettes. You wow. Know? wow. Uh, but, uh, so, at any rate, so Jim Lovell, of course, did indeed have a Corvette. Um, one of the things... Uh, you know, point out the uh, Frank Borman and John Glenn, I believe were the only two early astronauts who did not have a Corvette. Uh, John Glenn had a station wagon and Frank Borman had a pickup truck. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's very Frank. Yeah, that is very, very Frank. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, um, I, you know, I asked Frank about the, uh, so Frank is the anti-astronaut. I mean, he is, uh, um, you know when you think astronaut the, the flashy side of the astronauts you think of you know the watches and, and the cars and stuff and and uh and he's like you know i didn't gig anybody or feel bad of anybody who took advantage of that and it's just not me like i it's just not my style and uh he goes so i just you know i'd rather have a pickup truck <laughs> so um and you know there's a picture of uh uh if i'll see if i can post, put it in the facebook page but there's a picture of of uh, Frank and Susan washing their four-door sedan in the driveway. Oh, cool! And, and Frank just hoses down his car, you know, and did it, and it's like a nondescript general, you know, Chevy car, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. um But yeah, I thought oh. that was interesting. And uh, but so the Corvette. I mean, it, it all started in the original Seven program uh, yeah. with Al Shepard. He had a. A white, I believe, 1962 uh, Corvette. And, and I
0: think the last time I, I, I've seen Al Shepard's uh, vet and I think I saw it at uh, Kennedy Space Center. I think it's it was, or I I think it's a rotating display, but one of the ones that they had there was was Shepard's Corvette. Uh, yeah, there's uh, a few
1: of the Corvettes. If you're a car collector, um, and boy, you can get your hands on one. I mean, the Apollo astronaut Corvettes are. Amazing. I know one of Gus's Corvettes are out there. Um, I don't know if if any of Jim's are. Um, I do know, of course, the. Um, I don't. I don't know how. I don't follow the new the car news too crazy close. But uh, if I'm spoiling something, I'm very sorry. But they they are about to announce if they haven't already announced uh, that there is they they've located the second second Apollo Twelve Corvette.
0: Really? Um, wow.
1: Yeah, I think it's Dick Gordon's uh, that they uh, they found. And I think uh, – and the, the one that's been restored and is traveling is Al Beans. Yeah. Um, so there are uh, – and I want to say Al Warden's Corvette is out there somewhere. Um, I think he told me that. So no. – Yeah. Um, but, boy, what a car to collect. I mean, if you can get your hands on one of the, you know, the actual yeah. Apollo Corvettes. the, You know, the thing that uh, I thought was interesting uh, is – they said, you know, if you were down at, at you know, at, at, uh, in, in Florida or, or at the, at the area, you know, in, in Houston and you saw a Corvette coming, you, you just stopped and looked to see if it was an astronaut. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's almost, that's the best advertising you could do for a car. Oh, for <laughs> yeah.
0: sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it explains why, uh, Elon put a, <laughs> put a roadster around Mars. It's like, where
1: you know, everybody's looking. Yeah. So it, yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, I've got my, I wonder who owns that, uh, that Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser that's parked there too. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I I didn't know that many people who had Corvettes, but everybody's everybody's mom had a had a Vista Cruiser when I was growing up. And that little, there, it's it's funny seeing that that Vista Cruiser. I know every inch of the inside of it because you usually you were thrown in the back with about eight other kids, no seatbelts, <laughs> and it was the the floors made out of metal, and you just kind of bounced around and just tried not to slam your head on the metal everything the uh, the back seat was a big long bench and it would fold down flat uh great place to catch your fingers in uh, was, and there uh one of the things on the vista cruiser it's kind of hard to see it in this image because the car is pointed at the garage but just where the roof rack ends as it goes forward there was this little window as uh and that's why they call it the vista because it had this extra bit of glass if you if you're jammed if you're a little kid in the back and you jammed your head up against the roof you could look out the vista cruiser over the the next part of the the lowered roof that was in front of it but it would always the uh I, i i'm sure this was like a standard it's like it's like looking at an old cutlass from then that they always had the car cancer on the on the rear wheel wells the the vista cruiser Window, they're always leaked. No matter what, <laughs> this, the the rubber gasket. I don't know if if they just picked the wrong material to make the neoprene out of that held the, the gasket in, but it always leaked there. So if you were driving into a rainstorm and you were stuck in the back, eventually you'd get rained on through that window. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's it's amazing how yeah. I, I mean we we tie ourselves up with memories of cars. Um, oh yeah. Just just seeing just seeing the cars there. You know, it's like I know. I know what the, the the font of the Oldsmobile was on the back of that car, and, and seeing it, um, I gotta make one one little correction. That uh, that blue car that pulled up, which I think is a NASA car, that's a Dodge Coronet. Oh, is it? it? Okay. Yeah, oh man, it,
1: it's a Mopar, it, and I got it wrong. That's bad. It, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, no. It's I like couldn't. A I was bad. going from memory, so I couldn't. I wasn't looking at it. Yeah,
0: well, uh, there is a Ford. There's, I think, there's a. There, it's like a, a Torino or something that's parked. There's another blue car that's parked on the street, and that's a. I think that's a Ford. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a Coronet. I used to have a, uh, I, I used to have a Dodge with the same, uh, with the same insides. I had a Dodge Dart Swinger with a slant 225 and, uh, <laughs> welcome to car club people. Uh, <laughs> but it, you know, it's like, that's another car back in the day. There weren't that many, I mean, I have a Tesla now and it's only got 30 moving parts. And I think there were only 30 moving parts in a, in a mid sixties, uh, dodge so (laughs) it it was something you could take apart with a uh you know with with a ratchet wrench and a screwdriver you could take the whole car apart with maybe two or three tools um everything was the same size all the bolts were the same size there were you know the the starter motor had the same kind of bolts on it that you use for the engine mounts it was was all crazy stuff but it was uh it was so easy to work on those cars and uh the funny part was if you didn't get like uh you know, if you didn't have a V eight in the thing, if you had like a slant six, oh, yeah. there was so there was so much room in the front of that. Like it's it, it's this big hood, and you open it up, and there's this teeny little engine, <laughs> and just uh, just seeing the Cornet. That's what uh, I, I just I just remember how much uh, blank space, which is probably good because it was a good crush zone if you ran into things. And this is the the days before collapsible steering wheels and stuff. But uh, there was just so much empty uh, they could, they probably could have made the car about like two feet shorter and two feet uh uh not, not as tall because it's just just a whole lot of empty space in that thing but uh <laughs> great great cars i w- i was hoping you know the my favorite car from the, in the Do- if we want to talk about dodge cars my favorite car from that time in 1970 was the dodge polera which was that was like having an aircraft carrier i mean it was a three-laner you could take it out on the highway. And it drove like a big old boat, but you were, you know, you were king of the highway in in a Polara. Think
1: about how cool the astronauts were, man. Like, they're wearing, like, Omega Speedmasters, like, American Optics, like, aviators, they're driving Corvettes, like, these Uh, guys were just cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And they're,
0: you know, and they were all, they were all working with, uh, you know, base officer pay. So this was... This is stuff they would never normally have in their life if they'd be living in uh, married quarters on base they'd never have a house like that or cars like that or or you know where' where they maybe they maybe they'd get the watches i mean aviators are just that way but <laughs> uh yeah it's just so um it was a lifestyle that I think America wanted our astronauts to have that lifestyle to, you know to see it and have a you know they, they live in a, a nice house on the bay and uh but, you know, for what they had to put up with, with, you know, life or death uh, all the time. And they get, you know, they get into that in, at the end of this minute, we're seeing a young Jay Lovell getting to watch his father possibly die on air. Um, and we'll be next week, I don't want to spoil things, but next week we're going to be talking with somebody who, who's had this experience. So uh, I'll have to check back Check back next week and, and talk some more about this. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea of the astronaut family uh, of, you know, it's, it, it, it's unique in American history that there's, we've never had people that we've admired that had to go and get, you know, uh, corporate sponsorship to have the lifestyle that we wanted to see them in on camera. Um, you know, Life Magazine had, uh, you know, paid these different, these different things so that they could go, you know, they go water skiing with Jackie Kennedy, or they'd be seen at, uh. You know different galas and stuff and they had to wear tuxedos and things and you got to remember these guys they're all military people and they've been they've been bounced around from one base to another they've they've lived out in the desert at edwards or uh, pax river in maryland and uh, you know and living in I, I think you see a lot of that in the movie the right stuff it shows you that they're living in these cinder block houses out on a on a navy base or an air force base and you you know, here now they have this wonderful lifestyle that they can actually, uh, enjoy their, you know, their life and, uh, they're the center of attention and all this stuff. The only downside of it is, is they could die at any minute on a, on a mission. So I don't, you know, it, it the, the, uh, the amount of stress and strain, so many of them after, uh, after John Young got divorced, uh, and still stayed in the, you know, still stayed in the business uh, I think that just kind of kicked off uh, so many, and they, they cover this in uh, one of the From the Earth to the Moon episodes, but it finally loosened all these family stresses that people could get divorced because the stress had been there for years and years and they had to hold things together because the public was watching. Um, now, this of course, this isn't true for uh, Jim Lovell and, or any of the members of Apollo 8. They've all been married to the same uh, wonderful spouses all these years. Uh, but, you know, just imagine the kind of social pressure and just physical worry that not only the astronauts have, but their families around them have having to live with this day in and day out. Um, long after the cameras leave.
1: Um, I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't imagine it, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, there's a line they say in the right stuff where she, when, I think it's Trudy Car, uh, Trudy Cooper, uh, said, um, you know, um, one of her friends said that going to work on wall street was very dog eat dog. And, and, you know, she's like, could you imagine what those people would be like, you know, being the, the, the spouse of an astronaut, you know? And, and I think that's very true. It's, you know, in corporate America, like the worst thing that could happen is you come home and like, Hey, I lost my job. Oh my God, what am I going to do? Um, not the worst thing that can happen as a test pilot or an astronaut.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just, I mean, the general public watching them on on TV, and you see, gee, that was a nice launch, but all these all these family members, you know, little kids and 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 wives, having to, every time they watched, they had, you know, the the astronauts that were with them always had a contingency of what to do if things went south and where they were supposed to bring the families and you know get them informed and have them take that call from the from the president and yeah. You know, and planning the funerals and things, all all that's lined up. Um, You don't have backup plans like that at work. No, no. uh, You know, I I think
1: a child, being a kid of the 80s, um, you know, one of my earliest memories of the space program, unfortunately, was Challenger.
0: Yeah.
1: To this day, and I don't know if it's just been so ingrained in me or if I have some sort of mild, like, PTSD from it or something, but because yeah, we watched that live. I mean there was a teacher in space It was being broadcast everywhere um, I still get nervous when you hear the go for throttle up yeah um, and I don't know if you if you're like that too or if that's a common thing or
0: oh yeah I know I think I think that that's a trigger for every, everybody who lived through it I think sits sits there and, and watches this stuff and when they tell you they're at Max Q and you think gosh anything could happen now and uh, you know it's just it's another thing that they have to get past. And even though you know everything's changed, we've got abort systems in place we've got different fueling we're not using liquid hydrogen anymore when we're launching people into space but you know just because it's that's done doesn't mean it's over and there, it doesn't mean that there isn't a risk every time you know they press the ignition button uh, and yeah, I felt that on this this last uh, we haven't talked about this since the, since the launch of uh, the crew Dragon. But uh, I felt it a lot when, when I was watching them taking off off a of pad 39. I think about, you know, you think about Challenger, you think about Apollo one, you think about Columbia, and it's an un it's an untested system. I remember, I remember watching STS one. It was April twelfth, nineteen eighty one. I was at the University of Texas, and it's the first time there'd been an all up system that had never been tested before. Like, you know, it, with Apollo, they had Apollo 4, they had Apollo 6. They had endless uh, Saturn 1Bs that had been launched. Even the Gemini program, they had Gemini's 1 and 2, and and Mercury, they had tested both the Mercury Redstone and the Mercury Atlas. But with Space Shuttle, the first time they launched STS-1, John Young and, and Bob Crippen were sitting on top of something that had never been tried, and it was... You know, all or nothing. They didn't have it set up so that it could do automated launch or automated landing. It was still a partially, you know, human. Humans were in that mix. So uh, I just the world kind of stopped uh, as as they counted down to zero because once they lit those solid rocket boosters, there you can't. It's like it's like trying to turn off a can Yeah, a, a firework. You can't do it. Right. Yeah. But it launched, and you could hear people yelling in the launch control center that the tower was cleared and then um uh john mcleish who was uh he was the public affairs officer for um, mission control he took over john mcleish and he was talking as they got through the different um the different parts when they get to uh you know they were passing through max q and then they, they were go for throttle up and uh you could hear the wavering in his, I, I, I gotta, I'll, I'll post that video on, uh, on our site. Because if, if you listen to the flight of STS-1, you can hear the emotion in John McLeish's voice. Because everybody knew that this was a trip that you couldn't turn off. And until they got rid of those solid rocket boosters, there was no way down. And uh, they, they released the solid rocket boosters. And you hear the cheer in mission control when that happened. And then the guidance converged, and and they were heading to orbit, and it was just, it, the sense of relief was palpable. You could feel it through the TV, and I watched this in a, I was at, I was at a TV studio in Austin, uh, watching this on a on a couple of monitors that was coming in through a network feed, and uh, there were people that didn't know what was going on, other than oh they're they're uh, they're going to orbit. That looked good. But they didn't understand how much, how many firsts had been done just in the, you know, the opening six minutes of the launch. They had done things that had never been done before. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, imagine imagine every crew, and, and especially, I mean, you think about the, all the families. There's been a, there were 135 flights and two losses in the, in the shuttle program. Um, I know we're going to be talking about this more next week, but uh, gosh, the you say that you know we talk about the courage of the astronauts but the families that had to sit you know stay behind and watched. if something happened to the astronaut it was all over for them but uh you know with the families they had to sit and watch and then experience everybody you know wishing them the best and wishing them their you know condolences and stuff i mean it, you got to be pretty brave to be in an astronaut family but anyway we're, we're skipping ahead so <laughs> um a hey, good uh, Good talk today about cars it's always it's always yeah. good when we talk cars um <laughs> it makes me feel old looking <laughs> at things but uh yeah and uh, and we end with uh, jules bergman who was my go-to guy back in the day jules bergman was my, i mean a lot of people talk about how much they love walter cronkite but jules bergman i always felt he between him and frank mcgee on nbc i felt they knew so much about what was going on these guys um they camped out with the astronauts they really um they really knew their stuff. And Jules, uh, I always felt he had the best, he had the most realistic idea about how things were going. He, had, he was the first to break the news about Apollo 1 uh, when uh, uh, when the Apollo 1 fire happened. And he explained it in great context. There's, there's video as well. I'm not going to post this, but there's video as well of Jules Bergman the night after uh, Apollo 1. And he puts a lot of it into context explaining why you know why they were uh, why they were having all these issues with apollo and where it's where it set the uh, the rest of the space program and how how much of a how much of a hit that the space program took with the loss of the crew of apollo one um he he was a great guy uh died very early i think he died at age 55 I'm i'm not sure if i have that right but i remember uh he he passed early but uh He's just a brilliant guy, and he's kind of in the shadow. You know, most of these documentaries they just talk about Walter Cronkite, but I'm glad he gets some airtime in the movie because uh, Jules was a great uh, explainer of uh, <laughs> of space to a ten year old. Let me put it that way. Um, <laughs> wow. Well, anyway, I think we've covered just about everything for this minute. Uh, we've got some great guests coming up in the next week, so uh, please stay tuned. Uh, thanks for listening to us this week. If you have some uh, memories of uh, famous cars in your life uh we'd love to hear from you on social media go check us out uh we're always available at uh, apollo 13 minutes mission control on facebook or at uh apollo 13 minute on twitter uh, and uh, if you've missed any of our previous episodes you can catch them on any of your favorite your spotify apple podcasts or whatever but you can also find them on our big site apollo 13 minute.com apollo 13 minute.com uh, join us next week as we get some great guests to talk with uh, we will see you then because it looks like we're coming up on loss of signal in about 30 seconds so have a great weekend and we will see you here next monday on the apollo 13 minute